You're listening to CLNS Media, powered by BetOnline.ag. Go to CLNSmedia.com slash roll. Use our promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your first deposit. This is June 18th, and this is the Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. And welcome to another Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. My name is Evan Marinovsky. Coming back at you again, there was the big press release uh, last week. It was the day after Game 7, so I think it was Thursday morning the press release dropped. I won't go too deep into it, but pretty much was the buzz of Boston. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was tweeting about it. It was talked about on every major radio station in the country and on TV and everywhere. It was just big news, and, and you're all along for the ride, so... Keep listening, and, and we'll, we'll have fun. We'll have fun. Even though the Bruins lost in Game 7, we'll find a way to have fun. We'll still talk Bruins all summer. We're the only place that talks Bruins and the Black and Gold Hockey Podcast, which you should listen to. But, you know, we're the only place that talks Bruins. So this is this is really all you're going to get about the Bruins for the whole summer. Um, but I want to keep things quick, get right into the interview I did with Michael Hurley from WBZ and CBS Boston. I thought it went really well. Again, I want to keep things quick because I decided to make pasta right before – coming on for this, and I'm not the best cook in the world, so I was boiling pasta, and I'm realizing that it's about to burn if I don't get down there quick enough, so i got to move my, my ass during this, uh, during this intro. But at any rate, the thing with Michael Hurley was great. We dove into every possible Bruins topic. We talked about the Bruins partying. Do we care? How big of a choke is this? Uh, the Bruins Cup loss? You know, Tuka Rask, blame him or not. You know, what's the future of the team look like and sort of – when we realized the Bruins would falter in the cup during the series, game four, game two, blah, blah, blah. Again, all in the podcast with Michael Hurley. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the man himself, Michael Hurley. And we're here with Michael Hurley. Mike, what is up? What's going on? How are you? I'm good. Have you recovered since this this uh you know, people have been making fun of the Bruins beat people now for a week that we're saying we're tired. You know, oh. we're kind of, we're strung out. Have you recovered from the cup run that was? I'm going to be honest with you, and everyone can feel deep sympathy for me, but Sunday afternoon, I took an involuntary nap for about two hours, just happened, and then I still went to sleep at 9.30, slept until about 6 on Monday morning, and just still been tired all day. So you know what? Woe is me, but bravely I am persevering. But yeah, add me to the list of all those injured Bruins, just Mike Hurley, tiredness. Nevertheless, he persisted. Mm-hmm. What I think is, I the two days after the cup, I didn't get out of bed until like 1 p.m., which is like, yeah. I mean, I'm a college kid, so like that makes mm. sense. Yeah. At the same time, like I was really tired, like very, yeah. very tired. And it was a bummer too because I was like, I was rooting for like quadruple overtime in Game Seven. I'm like, I'll work two days in a row if I have to. But to be that tired after such a, a letdown and a bummer of an event was, uh, it wasn't as fun that way. So speaking of a bummer and and, and uh, being tired, it was clear the Bruins might not have been so tired when they were the videos of them partying were going on, uh, spreading around the Twitter sphere. There was a great video of a pump up uh, pump up Tuka Rask speech that was just amazing about Kevin Electric. Miller. It was it, it, I almost cried watching it. Um, like what a hype man he is. Uh, also, how about the the hat he's wearing at? Yeah, I feel like that's not something I've ever seen anybody ever do at a club. It looked like a leftover from their Winter Classic getups when they did the Peaky Blinder things, but really kind of looked more like the Newsies. Uh, so maybe it was just leftover and he wanted to get a second use out of it. 
Let's, all right, so let's dive right into this partying thing because this has been splitting everybody in half. Um, what do you? Should we care about this? Do you care about this? No, I mean I don't. I can't tell people what to feel. I personally think that, I can. Oh, you can do whatever you want, uh, and that's kind of my stance on it. But I think the the emotional, physical, taxing grind of the playoffs can be so overwhelming and churning that the the idea of a night out to have, you know, 11 beers and forget about the pain of what just happened, uh, if only for a few hours, I can relate to. I would probably be in the same boat, so I'm not going to sit here and say they shouldn't have gone out. I'm sure the place was booked win or lose, uh, so it was a matter of using the room. Uh, that part of it's fine. I mean, Marchand being shirtless on the bar uh, with goggles. The goggles I didn't understand because I didn't see any actual liquids being poured. Maybe he's just know. aerodynamically... Uh, ready to go if, if he needs to move quickly, but, um, that, maybe that's, that, when Marchand goes out, that's what he does, I guess. But, uh, outside of that, I mean, it seemed like they were out and no one really went nuts outside of Marchand. Tuka on the microphone, I don't know if that counts. That was him trying really hard. But, uh, no, I would never begrudge anyone for trying to shake off what has to be a very painful thing. I get the confetti and the smoke looks, uh, pretty bad, but, I mean, I, I I'm not going to personally judge because again, if I was on a team and I was devastated and I was in pain, eh, I would probably be there too. I what I look at it, my first reaction was it doesn't look the best. Sure. It doesn't look the best. But when you really think about it, these guys played an entire hockey season, no real breaks. Let them have fun. Right. Like they're getting over a game seven dud, which they sucked. And you know what, Mike, we were both there in the locker room. Mm-hmm. Russ was head in his hands crying. Martian was yep. crying to us. Chara was crying. Everybody was crying. Joakim Nordstrom like, yeah. punched out a reporter for stepping on the B and then just <laughs> people's arms crying. I mean, really, like, they McAvoy. can't. McAvoy. 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 Chara like, was talking with his face hanging off. Yeah, I mean, these guys cared. Like, the people saying, clearly they don't care about winning. They care about winning. I don't think that's the issue here. Um, I don't care. Go out and party. Like, you, you work all year for that. Go have fun. Go have a little bit of fun. They had the, as you said, and it's going to piss some people off because everybody got on the blues for doing this, for renting out the the top room of a bar before Mm -hmm. game six in case they win. The Bruins had this place rented out for if they won, most likely, and they Mm -hmm. lost, and they said, screw it, we're still going to party. And I don't blame them. And and maybe that's the 20-year-old college kid. Maybe that's, you know, you're a young guy. Maybe it's you. Yeah, I'm young and hip. I definitely go out all the time, for sure. I saw you. After Game Seven, you were we were all clubbing, all the media yep. people clubbing. That's Joe what, McDonald, I mean, yeah, Joe <laughs> Haggerty, and 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 you and and Kevin Paul Dupont was swinging in on a chandelier. I mean, it was really. I, I, I had to carry was, Matt Kelman home. It was it was an ugly scene. I will say oh. though, the, the the counterpoint is if I had spent five thousand dollars to be at Game Seven, perhaps that would bother me a lot more. Seeing them partying when I was basically financially devastated because of my choice to buy the tickets. I can sort of understand being enraged by that. Outside of that, I don't think there's necessarily a good reason to really be mad about it. And we never really got the game that we wanted. We never really got the moment and the night and sort of the memorable Game 7 that I think the hockey world deserved. Instead, we got just a dud. And it was just a, a terrible time for that game to come. If it had come in you know, Game 2 or Game 3, it's less noticeable. But the fact that it came in Game 7 when everything was on the line, it just... I, I feel personally as a spectator cheated because I was ready for greatness and didn't get it. Yeah. No, it's like I wanted it. I wanted there to be a great game seven. I didn't I, you know, here's the unbiased reporter. Didn't care who won. I just wanted a great, great 
hockey game, and that was missed by a long shot. And I felt, mm-hmm. I felt going in, I thought the Bruins were going to win for nothing. I said that. That was my prediction. So I, I knew, I felt like this game would be a dud, just because the hype, like. The hype going into Game 7 is, and, and Mike Petralia was t- saying this to me, and he, he's 100% right. He's like, everybody focuses on the hype. Nobody focuses on the game. So everyone's like, it's Game 7, it's Game 7, it's Game 7. And they build the expectation up so much, that in reality, it's like not living up to that. You can't possibly live up to that. I mean, like what's funny is they always say, you know, the things you expect the most end up like giving the least, like weird deep mantras from life like that. But it, it really felt like it applied to Game 7. Um I don't know. I just I thought it was a crappy game. I want to ask you how big of a choke job, or would you call it a choke job? Uh, I mean, them I mean, losing I, this cup. I know that's become like sort of a point of debate, and I get it to an extent because you did, in retrospect, really have an easy road. The Blue Jackets were, uh, the Blue Jackets were okay. The Hurricanes were not good at all. They were the hot team, the proverbial hot team that ran out of heat. Uh, the Maple Leafs are actually pretty good, but you survived that, you know, obviously by the skin of your teeth, having to win game six on the road and game seven. So I understand that it's sort of choke in the sense that you might not get the opportunity to roll right into the finals like that against the team that was in last place in January. Like the opportunity to win a cup, to almost steal a cup was there and they didn't follow through. But in terms of actually the, the series, the actual series itself, I mean, the Blues were good. I don't think enough people here respected the Blues. I think I, I, I would put myself in that group ahead of time. I had Bruins in six because they had a better coach. They had more experience, which I thought mattered. And, and they had the, the better goaltender. And none of those things really mattered, did it? I mean, Bergeron, uh, St. Patrice was not St. Patrice. He was almost invisible the whole series. Marchand had an empty net goal in game one and then uh, a goal in game six, but was fairly quiet. Pasternak in game seven couldn't keep his feet, couldn't you know, successfully fire off a one-timer. The, the the players that you were ready to count on didn't get it done. And, and I guess if you want to call it a choke, you can. But I think it's, yes, they didn't play up to their potential, but also the Blues made sure that it mattered that the Bruins didn't play up to potential. So I'm big on giving the Blues credit while still pointing out everything the Bruins didn't do right. Whether that constitutes a choke or not, I don't know. But I still think the Blues were obviously worthy and found a way to beat the Bruins, which was basically beat them up until they were just decimated and had no no will to live anymore. I mean, a lot of those guys by game five were just – it looked like they were checked out. Not not totally checked out, but you know what I mean, where they're just not into the physicality, not getting to their normal games, and just they were thrown off. So I think the Blues deserve credit. And, you, I mean, you, again, you have players looking to refs. Have we ever seen a Bruins oh. team do that? You know, and – and again, I never want to hear the name perfection line ever again. I mean, not that perfect. Look, Patrice Bergeron's close to perfect, but this goes Usually. to prove he's close to perfect. He is not fully perfect. Um, I compare this Bruins loss and this failed cup run. I know that sounds weird to say because they got to game seven of the cup run. Right, but, but, but the expectation, they failed. I compare this and the whole run, and I said this on last week's Bruins beat, said it on Twitter. Kind of to the Patriots in 18 when they lost to the Eagles in the Super Bowl, where you have this somewhat easy run to the, uh, to the Super Bowl. You know, you face a team that you're heavily favored against, backup quarterback. You know, you have the advantage at coach. You have the advantage pretty much everywhere. And you just – I mean, now granted, the Patriots offense came to play. The Patriots defense did not in that Super Bowl. But in reality, they laid a dud just like the Bruins laid a dud in Game 7. 
it sort of felt the same with the Bruins. You have an easy road. Easy, I mean, you didn't play the Lightning. You didn't get the Capitals or the Penguins. You got the Hurricanes in the Eastern Conference Final. And then, you know, you didn't get the Predators. You didn't get the Winnipeg Jets. Um, you didn't get the Flames. You didn't get the Knights. You got the Blues. You got the Blues, who yeah. are good, as we now know, but not like this generation. They're not the 2013 Blackhawks. They're not even the 2011 Canucks. They're just a team that had some heart in them, and, and you got beat. So I look at this, and I put that with the Patriots run. Now, you're obviously a, a call. You write about everything for BZ. Would you agree with that? Because last week, DJ Bean went out of his way to say how great of a sports take that was, and I, uh, I want to be commended again. Um, well, I think you're disrespecting my Jacksonville Jaguars, so okay, uh, I got to be a little bit more tepid with my praise of your take. But it is apt in the sense that it was—it feels like a blown opportunity. We're obviously, in that sense, you give credit to the Eagles. What Nick Foles did was amazing. What everyone on that Eagles team did was amazing. They punted what once? Uh, it maybe had Malcolm Butler played. If we want to open that can of worms, it might have been a different story. But uh. Yeah, it's a lost opportunity where you were good enough to beat the team. You should have beaten the team, but you didn't beat the team. So it's sort of like tough noogies. And really, I think the other part of this that we're getting is that for all of Boston's championships that have been won since 2001, the losses are starting to pile up to the point where psychologically fans are just going to be uh, sports psychologically damaged for years to come. No one's going to know how to properly or normally handle things the way most sports fans do because it's like, Boom or bust. Like, there's nothing better than winning a championship, but there's nothing worse than losing the championship. So, uh, emotionally, people are going to be a little bit damaged for years to come. And I think this, the nation should come together in sympathy for Boston sports fans in that regard. Oh, they should have a vigil. Mm-hmm. And they should have a vigil right now. But it's funny, you mentioned the losses, and this has been a big topic of conversation all week. When I look at the losses that Boston's had now, because it's eight, right? It's eight. I mean, that's uh, a lot of What? Uh, three Super Bowls. Two Stanley Cup Finals, an NBA Finals, no World Series losses. So that's yeah. – uh, how many is that? Three plus two plus one. That's not eight, I don't think. Six. Seven. No. Six. That's six. six. Whatever. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you could add in the Revolution. They keep losing finals. So I don't care. Like they million. don't count. They don't it's count. Like a million. I get people tweeting at me all the time, talking about the Revolution. No, thank you. <laughs> No, they have a very I, I rabid like, fan base, but not oh, very yeah. large, large no. necessarily. Hey, Anyways. Uh, uh, but no, I look at the losses and I think this ranks behind the undefeated season Patriots loss. This is the second worst championship loss in this era, I think. Because the, cause, because the 18, even though the Patriots blew it in 18 against the Eagles, the, they have enough winning around it that it's not like, oh my God. Whereas the undefeated season was immortality. That's like a whole nother thing. You know, if it's just a regular Super Bowl loss after going 14-2 and or 13-3, and again, I put it with the Eagles where it's like you have all the winning around to sort of mask it. The Bruins are now one for three in cups, and they blew it in game seven. I put that number two behind the undefeated season. I, I haven't really thought it out fully, but where I would agree with you is that in quality of quality of a was Celtics and was Kobe, and you understand that. And Pagasol was at his prime. Uh, the the 07 Giants weren't very good. They were 10-6. They were a wild card team, and they you would beat them in Week 17. So the Patriots should have beaten them. So I think in that sense, in similar to 18, where you should have beaten them. Whereas the Bruins in 13 came very close, yes, but they were also up against the dynastic Chicago Blackhawks team. 
you can you can certainly understand that they didn't win that, just like they lost to the Oilers in 1990 and couldn't get past the Penguins with Lemieux and all. Like when you faced a historically great opponent, you can sort of understand the losing. You don't. You would rather they win, but uh, I don't think the St. Louis Blues are on the cusp of a dynasty. So I think you're right in that sense that uh, you should have beaten the Blues. You should have beaten the Giants. Should have beaten the Giants in 11 too. So uh, yeah, you could put it in one of the worst ones. I, like. Like I said, like I wouldn't put the Bruins in 13 as a, as a horrific loss or the Celtics, even though they lost in Game 7 that they were winning in L.A. Uh, you can understand because that Lakers team won a couple championships. So I'll give you that one. I'm not going to go bean on you, but I'll give you that one. Oh, darn it. Um, You wrote something after Game 7 that I thought was interesting and sad. It's along the lines of what I wrote, but I'm not going to read what I wrote because that would mm. be a little too self-centered. So I'll read what you wrote. Okay, yeah, you get that article out right now. Um, but you wrote, not quite consummate, Sukarask debate to live on perhaps forever. And and that in itself is sad because you've been a huge Tuka defender for years now, like years. Mm. And you wrote something in here, as the fan base and the talking heads in the media argued year after year after year about whether Rask had the makeup to play his position at a championship level, as doubters openly and regularly questioned if he could be the best player for a Stanley Cup winner, the goaltender simply continued to go about his business. The standard, which is to say one of the great postseason goaltending performances of all time offered by Tim Thomas in 2011, could never reasonably be met. The bar was too high to clear for anyone, including Rask, until it wasn't, or it almost wasn't. I think the greatest storyline of this whole cup run is the Bruins wasted an amazing performance out of Rask that I might even say is better than 2013. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but when it comes to get almost getting the cup, I mean, there were a lot of people saying if the Bruins lost 2-1, one nothing, 3-2 in Game 7, Rask is getting the con smite. Now, I don't know what mm-hmm. he'd do with it. Even if they lost, even if they lost four one, if it wasn't Ryan O'Reilly that scored the first goal, I think it still might have been Rask. Yeah, and so that goes to show, like they blew it, and now you're going to hear the people second guessing. Well, yeah, Marsha went off for the change, but it was a backhand for Petrangelo to his right side. Mm -hmm. You should be stopping that, and then the O'Reilly tip. You should be stopping that. I mean. Like what? What? Yeah. What's that? It was it was the perfect storm for what has been a to me a frustrating uh, storyline. But I think there's the simplification of the sport is that the goalie is always going to get too much praise for wins and too much blame for losses. That's sort of part of it. So uh, you usually use the word "too good defender," which I find a frustrating term because. I think I'm being fairly reasonable with it where the guy, I'm not saying he's the best goalie of all time, but he does have the second best save percentage of all time. And he does have the second best postseason save percentage of all time. So there's this, this narrative and storyline that he gets nervous in big moments and can't handle it. And this, you know, two goals allowed in the first four shots is going to perpetuate that, even though, you know, you look at, the, there's people I've seen, you know, the light shine bright is Tuka flops yet again. You look at how he played in game six and seven against Toronto. You look at how he played, uh, facing elimination in game six of the cup final. Those three games, I, I wrote in the story, I think he had a 975 save percentage and a 0.50 goals against. So did he forget to get nervous those nights? Did he forget to get scared of the big moment? Or is he actually an exceptional goalie who, like anyone else, allows goals because he's playing NHL teams? Now, with specifically that second goal, uh, which was obviously the backbreaker, ended the game basically, I understand that people want him to make a great A save there because it's the Stanley Cup final. It's game seven. You are the presumed con Smythe. 
you'd like a goalie in that situation to step up and make an unreal save to lift his team and keep the score at one nothing. I get that, and I think that's fair. You also have to understand you're not always going to get that, no matter who your goalie is. It's it's a two-on-one that basically becomes a breakaway, a guy that doesn't have any breakaway moves for Rask to, like, tap into in his, in his you know, instant uh, – the what's the word uh, encyclopedia of knowledge he's not ready for a petrangelo breakaway move petrangelo has two career shootout attempts like it's not even in the scouting <laughs> report and he beat him he was he preparing for the shot if you look at rask was preparing for the initial wrist shot for petrangelo the second and he, he got the puck. yeah and then he moved it to the to the backhand and he opened up the arm the, the six hole just enough and petrangelo is a great player. I think Petrangelo was the best player of the series for as good as O'Reilly was. Uh, and so, again, I think both sides are fair. I think if you wanted Rask to make that save, that's fair. And if you want to give credit to Petrangelo for making a great play and capitalizing on a really bad mistake by Marchand, you can do that too. I, I, I tend to, you know, gravitate somewhere in the middle that understands all the factors and, and weighs it. But that being said, Evan, how many goals did the Bruins score in the first 55 minutes of Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final? Zero. Zero. So it's, it's, there's always this hyper focus on the goalie when the team didn't show up. And, I, and my other headline after game seven was zero Bruins had a good game seven. And I've yet to have anyone disagree with me on that. So yes, uh, you would have liked that out of Rask, but uh, I would not ever say that's the reason they lost game seven. You wrote that was long. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's fine. No, I, it's an impassioned defense. I respect it. Rask and close out games, 2019. You, you wrote this. Game seven against Toronto, 32 saves, 33 shots. Game six against Columbus, 39 saves, 39 shots. Game four, Carolina, which you could argue there's no pressure there, but legitimate. 24 saves, uh, 24 shots. I agree with you. Uh, I don't, see, I, I think enough Bruins fans are going to remember the Marchand change where they look and say, okay, the rest of the team cost Rask this. That wasn't really Rask's fault in that game. 16 saves on 20 shots doesn't look good, but I'm with you on the on the Rask thing. Uh, remember him forever. Um, before I get into my ad read, I want to ask you, do the Bruins get back to the cup with this core? Because I tweeted it, and I lost followers, which is oh, bullcrap. Well, I'll like, tell you, I, I was walking. I was walking out of the garden game seven at like one thirty in the morning. Again, what was me? It was very late. I'm still oh. tired. Um, and I'm reading my mentions and someone was like, Hey, good story, but I don't think you can win with this team. I think you got to start moving off pieces. First round, crazy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you can win with this core. They came one win shy of doing it. Um, can they make it back? It's just so hard in hockey. I mean, we've seen it. It's such a grind. It's, it's so taxing. It's so exhausting that, they're going to struggle in, in October to just be mentally ready for the games. We saw it back in 2012. They were coming in mean, 2011, the 2011-12 season. I feel it's hard when you're used to playing the most intense hockey games of your life to come back and play Florida on a Wednesday night. Like, I think it's it's just human nature. We're seeing with the Red Sox this year. It's hard to get as – like, it's hard to play those games when the intensity isn't there. So – yeah, it's hockey. Anything could happen. The Blues were in last place in January and made it back, but I just think uh, the odds of repeating as conference champs is going to be tough because, I don't know, but Tampa's going to have to make a couple changes to tweak to maybe improve their playoff chances. The Capitals might come back stronger. There's always a team that we don't expect uh, to come out of the basement. So I'd say no just because of the odds. Uh, they'd be good enough, but it's just it's too hard in that league, I think. Well, I look at sort of the Bruins in 11. I mean, if you look at the 2011 Bruins, you have 
you know, this promising young core. Krejci's emerging on the scene. You have Bergeron as well. You have Tyler Sagan. You know, you have all these pieces. And then, you know, they they, they win it in 13 – they lose it in 13. Excuse me. <laughs> lose it in 13. Um, you have Sagan still. Then you trade him away. You know, if you if you'd ask a, a Bruins fan, uh, day before game six of 2013, you said – does this look like a dynasty? You could argue yes. You have a young Tuka Rask, Sagan, Dougie Hamilton. You know, you have all these guys front to back who are solid. And, yeah, you could really make a case that the next five, six years, they're going to make some serious cup runs. And instead, you know, they, they, it's 12-13, they lose the cup. 13-14, they win the President's Trophy, they lose in the second round. And then everything just goes hell, to hell. Mm-hmm. They, they lose their coach, they lose their GM, they miss the playoffs two straight years. And then, it, you know, it's just sort of until now where you go to a cup. So I look at this and I'm like, well, we don't even know, you know, could this young core be here in two years? You know, what's the future? I mean, so I, I'm not going to sit here and do hypotheticals and guess, but I don't really know. And And as you said, like, you can't – it's hard to get up for a game – against the Detroit Red Wings on a Thursday night in November. At after, Little Caesars Arena. At Little Caesars Arena. Like, I just doesn't – like, it's hard for us media people to get up for that. Oh, yeah. 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 So, and I think that is is real. And I don't – I think – I don't blame people. I mean, I like at the Red Sox this year. The best storyline of the first couple of months was Michael Chavis, you know, coming onto the scene and, and injecting <laughs> some life because he had something to prove. And I think there's an element of, like, well, I don't have to prove anything. Like, the, these guys aren't uh, – granted, the Red Sox actually won last year, so maybe there is a little bit of difference. Uh, I can't recall exactly how the Bruins – responded in 13 like you said they won the president's trophy so i'm assuming they had a pretty good start to the year but um i don't it's just hard that league is so unpredictable uh we have the the penguins were the first repeat champions since the red wings in the 90s i want to say so yeah uh sustaining it in that league is very tough i think you that's why you see even the blackhawks were one of the best teams of this generation they took a couple years or three years in between all of their cup wins so uh and then you look at the couple i haven't done a deep dive in the cup losers but I don't think their history is great just off the top of my head. I can't think of many teams to lose the cup and come back and win it. Uh, I'm probably wrong on that somewhere, but top of my head, it doesn't – seems right, so I'm going to say it. Yeah, you lose the cup, you don't win it the next year. There's a column idea. There's a column idea. But I actually – I'm going to dispute you on this. The 08 uh, Penguins. Oh, yeah, the Penguins Red Wings. Yep. And the, they won the next year against the Red Wings, so yep. debunked. Marion Hosel um, was like bouncing from team to team. He almost lost it for both teams in consecutive years. Would have been fun. <laughs> and then he won it the next year with the 0910 Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to learn how to, if you want to bet well on the Cup winner next year, let me tell you how to do it. It's with my good friends over at BetOnline.ag. They're more than just some online betting platform. There's a lot of them out there, but none are like BetOnline.ag. Their approaches. Focus on the player, and they built their incredible reputation on offering you, the clients, nothing but the best. From cutting-edge technology to enticing promotions and the latest sports betting odds, they have it all. They're famous for their sports book, where there are live lines on all major sporting events across all the major sports, including the NHL. And now, of course, we have the MLB going in full swing. Go bet on those Boston Red Sox. They've won, what, five in a row now? Five in a row. Hot. Red hot. Five in a row. It's the Baltimore Orioles. Tony Maz says don't believe in it, though, so you never know. Um <laughs> I kind of agree, but I agree with them too. Uh, their live betting feature allows you to bet on your favorites quick and easy and in real time. If you'd like to bet on it, these MLB games or whatever sport you like, Women's World Cups coming up, bet on that. 
U.S. is a safe bet. Use my personal promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins to get 50% cash back on your first deposit. Again, that's promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins. If you guys like to keep this podcast free, which I hope you would, I'm not cheap. Go there and take advantage of this great opportunity. That's betonline.ag. All right, now let's focus on the offseason. A lot of questions. And I think there's one question that everyone's overlooking. And we'll get to the, we'll get to some of the bigger ones later. But I think the biggest that no one's going to focus on is where's Charlie Coyle fit next year? Because the guy had a breakout, had a great postseason for the Bruins. He's this hometown kid. Everyone loves him. He played really well. His, his chemistry with Johansson was unbelievable. Again, Johansson, another question mark. But I think Coyle made a real push to be the number two center on a team next year in that postseason. He might have. And, you know, everyone's going to do their salary cap configurations. And part of that will be, can you move David Krejci $7 million? Uh, if that were the case, Coyle would figure to be a decent choice there. But it's such a – I'm not quick to get rid of David Krejci. Oh, uh, I don't want to either. So I – as much as fans get frustrated with him because he's not like the physical badass bruiser that people love, he is still the most gifted offensive visionary on that team. Uh, you do lose a lot. The fact that he was able to put up – what did he have, 70-something points this year without lingers. Again, DeBrus, you know, scored a bunch of goals but wasn't exactly – it wasn't the second year step forward that we anticipated, and the right wing spot was a revolving door. And it was the playoffs, and David Backus was on David Krejci's wing, which I think doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but I think Coyle's fine in that third role with the Bruins for one more year, and then he can make his money because I don't think anyone would hold it against them for playing behind, you know, for lack of a better word, playing behind Bergeron and Krejci. And I think uh, health-wise, Bergeron missed time this year. Krejci, you never know, could be out for you know, eight, nine, ten game stretch to have Coil there is probably a pretty good safety net. So I don't think that's necessarily uh, an issue. Uh, obviously, Heinen is a little bit questionable. I know people, the same way people feel uh, about Krejci, they feel doubly about Danton Heinen, and I understand that too because he's not, again, a big bruising physical presence. But Bruce Cassidy seems to like him, and they really like his flexibility to move up and down from the first, second, and third line. So uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a bit of a question mark. The third line, I would say, right now, just being Charlie Coyle, probably doesn't look great. But uh, that's where the younger guys and the, the recent year's draft picks get the chance to maybe come up and, and have an impact on the team, and maybe that works out. Do you think there's any other moves this team makes? You know, like whether it be big, whether it be small, what do they do with Krejci's right side? I mean, I think that pretty big storyline. Uh, I mean, I threw it in this, my story about the future, and it's I said it's like a fantasy hockey trade, but I don't think it would happen. A goaltender move, because oh, that is... Michael Hurley thinks they're trading Duke Rath yeah, right heard it now, first. right the headline. I'm just, it's just when you look at the, the, the money, you know, there's $7 million to Rath, there's 7 and a quarter to Tuca, uh, and the, I mean, sorry, to Krejci, and then there's $6 million to Bacchus. Those are the, the, the big salaries that... Obviously, Bergeron and Marchand and Pasternak are big sellers, but you're not getting rid of any of those guys. I don't know. I don't think they would do that, but he'll never. his value will never be as high as it is right now, where he had a consummate postseason, uh, had a very good regular, not a great regular season, but a good regular season, and you got great goaltending for a stretch out of Halak. Maybe they move Halak. I mean, he's he's due two and a half, two seven five, I want to say, which is a lot to play a backup. It, it paid off this year. I think you're happy to pay that premium to give Rask only 55 games. 
but maybe that's another way they clear some space in order to make it work with, you know, the McAvoys and Carlos and Krugs and, and, and have what they want in the back end because there, there's a lot of money that needs to be spent that, I don't know, you saw what Eric Carlson got, which uh, McAvoy's clearly not at that level yet. He's still a few years away from that point. But McAvoy's going to have to make, I don't know, conservatively six, I think, for at least three or four years. So there, there's there's a lot of money that's going to be dealt out. Again, I don't think Tuka's moving, but you asked me a question, and I answered it with my fantasy hockey trade. Well, I respect it. I mean, I, look, I think Halak would get you something. I think if you traded Rask after this postseason, you would get, like, an Anthony Davis-like return. You would get yeah. a ton. And so if they really were looking, which I don't think they are. Obviously. I don't think so. He has yeah, two no. years left at $7 million. I think he's 32, 33. It's perfectly fine, I think. Uh, but hmm, you want to get spicy. There you go. Spice. Yeah. Get some spice. Get some get some Tuka Rask going. Um, all right, so I think we've covered everything in the offseason. Do you have anything else you want to say? Do you have anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, still just disappointed by that game seven. And, and if you want to go into to missed opportunities in that series, I think there's two that stand out outside of the line change in game seven. Game two in overtime to come out with zero urgency. And just there, the Blues played that game, that overtime, as if their season depended on it, and the Bruins didn't. And it was just three minutes of absolute dominance leading to the overtime goal by uh, what's his face, Mr. Uh, Tall Skinny Defenseman. Uh, doesn't really narrow it Edmondson? down. No, it wasn't him. Gunnarsson. Gunnarsson. I get them. Uh, yeah, Gunnarsson. They're all 6'4 and 2, 225. Um, <laughs> that was a huge blown, blown chance. And then I think game four still is the biggest missed opportunity because he. But just Chase Bennington in game three, you put five goals on 19 shots past him. They weren't all his fault, but getting pulled, that was the biggest night in St. Louis hockey for 50 years, 40 years, whatever. And the rookie goaltender had to take the skate of shame off the ice. You had a chance to really stomp your foot down, take a 3-1 lead, and they got 23 shots on net in the entire game. Two of them went in. So if you if you do the math and you get 10 more shots in, you probably win that game. They didn't. And I feel like those two mood point. They could have won that series. And again, you give credit to the Blues for beating a Bruins team that was very good. Uh, but we look at it from a Bruins perspective. I think games two in overtime, game two in overtime, game five the entirety, and the end of the first period of game seven, those should sting for a while because that is what makes it feel like a lost opportunity. That's a bummer way to end it. But there we are. It's a bummer. It's a bummer time of year, I think, if you're a Bruins follower. Oh, yeah. Game four was such a miracle chance. They they go in game three, they absolutely just torch them in St. Louis, just literally stick up the middle finger. And I, I cannot believe that that series ended the way it did. Everybody thought Bruins in five. I had Bruins in seven all the way, for the record. Raise myself some more. I just cannot believe that that series went seven and that they lost it. Um, I, had, I had Maple Leafs in seven, for the record. I, I, I thought okay. it was their time. I thought, I thought they, they no. would do. Well, you were one sport off, but you were close. I, I was feeling the Toronto buzz. I just was a little – I couldn't navigate it in my brain to the right spot, but pretty close. Couldn't get into the right locker room in Air Canada Center. Um, <laughs> you want to plug anything? Nope, I don't. Don't follow me on Twitter. It's a terrible idea. I don't recommend it. I agree. Don't follow yep. me on Twitter. Don't follow me on Twitter. Deal. The gifting season's over. You have no reason to follow me. There's no more reason. Stuff. 
Today I made a gift of Roger Clemens at a 1986 Red Sox parade, which apparently they had. So you can always gift. There's always something to give. <laughs> Loserville. That is uh, just Loserville. Um, but at any rate, Hurley, thank you for joining. Uh, I'm Evan Marinovsky for CLNS Media. See you next week. <laughs>